And then we're going to uh, open up our Bibles and get into our scripture for today, Isaiah 49. We're going to look at 49, just verses 1 through 7, which says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nation, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Good afternoon, Echo Church. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. As always, of course, we are recording this sermon on a Friday afternoon, and we're praying that God, by His Spirit, will move in our midst as we're all gathered together on Sunday. Uh, Some of you have come in from our Zoom, our our lobby, that where we're gathering on Zoom and hearing from each other, just hearing how the week is going. I want to invite everybody to join that if uh, if you're coming in and and you you weren't aware that that was going on. Love to just make you aware that we're doing that. We're gathering together as a church beforehand, just hearing from each other before we start our service uh, each Sunday or before we go on to YouTube Live. So uh, I'm looking forward to being with you guys right now and getting into the Word together. If I haven't met you yet, if you're logging in and you've not been a part of us before, my name is Pastor JD and I'm the lead pastor here. And we are going to continue our series uh, this, uh, this weekend in Isaiah. So uh, you've already turned to Isaiah chapter 49. Sarah led us through that reading. I'd like to open us up in prayer and we'll get into Isaiah. Father, we ask right now that you would show yourself as great amongst the nations. We've read about how you've sent your servants, that he is bringing salvation to the nations. And Lord, we proclaim that you are God over all the nations, that there is no people group. There is no people. There's no single person that will not ultimately bow and recognize you as Lord. And what we ask, God, is that you would put that afresh on our hearts this afternoon as we're hearing that, that you would put a conviction of our hearts. Some who are listening to my voice right now have not yet put you as the Lord of their life. They have not yet bowed their knee of their hearts and trusted in you for their salvation. And God, I pray that you would convict us now of the truth that you do reign over this earth, that you reign over this whole universe. And God, you not only reign, but you mercifully, mercifully have reached out in your son, Jesus Christ, that we could be saved. And so God, I pray that many would turn to you in faith this afternoon. And I pray that for those of you, those that are trusting in you already, that they would be strengthened in their faith as we open up your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. As I already mentioned, we are moving through the, uh, a series in Isaiah. It's actually taking, it's going to take us a total of 26 weeks, and I think we're in week 16. So we have, we're over halfway done with it, but we, we named the series uh, The Sovereign Servant. And I want to talk for just a little bit about why we named the series that. We named it Sovereign Servant because if you look in the book of Isaiah, and if you've been following with us, you've probably seen this, that the, the, the book of Isaiah is sort of ordered in that order. In other words, the beginning of the book of Isaiah is really about the sovereign king, the sovereign of that title, sovereign servant. So the beginning of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is really about the sovereignty of God. It's about his power. It's about his kingliness. I mean, for those of you that have been joining with us, haven't we seen in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is caught up into the very throne room of God, and, and we see the angels. We see where God is on the throne, and the angels are there ministering to him, and they're calling back one, one to the other, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says, the, old, the whole earth is filled with his glory. So here is this picture we have already right at the beginning of Isaiah where God is a king. He is on the throne. He is in a throne room. He is the sovereign, not just over the people of Israel, but over the whole earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And we saw that as we moved on in Isaiah in chapters 13 all the way through 34, one by one, each nation, God speaks to them and he speaks to them as their king. He speaks to them as the one who reigns over them. And, and, and on those chapters are hard to read because they are, they are judgment chapters upon the nations. But all in all, we are getting this concept, we're getting this idea in place that God is a sovereign king who reigns over all. And so he judges the nations in chapters 13 through 34. But it isn't as though God is the God just over the nations outside of Israel. There's lots in Isaiah about God being the king over Israel themselves. We read about chapter 5 where God is, speaks about Israel as if they are a vineyard, as if they're a vine, like a grapevine in a vineyard. And God says, I was the one who planted you. I was the one who took care of you in every way. And I came to look for you to produce fruit. He tells us that the fruit there is the, the, the works that come out of your life, righteousness and loving others. He says, but I came and I found no fruit. He says, so what am I supposed to do now with my vineyard? And of course, he speaks a judgment against even the people of Israel. So God in Isaiah has declared himself as a sovereign king. And he's declared himself as a judge. And we have seen plenty of judgment in the book of Isaiah. But something else we also see in the first, say, 39 chapters of Isaiah is we get these glimpses of God's salvation. We see how God is, at times, will speak very tenderly to his people. And he will oftentimes speak about a future day that is coming where God's people are going to dwell with him again. And if we're reading the book of Isaiah carefully, we should ask ourselves the question, how is that going to be? How is it going to be that the, the king who is the righteous judge over all of the universe is going to just be able to say to a group of sinful people, well, come on in. I'm just going to forget about your sins. Come on in and be with me for all eternity. 
And we're left with this tension in the book. We're left wondering how is it that God can call a people so sinful, so far from him. Israel is far from him. The nations outside of Israel are far from him. How can God call a people to himself when he is perfect and they remain in corruption? And beginning in chapters 39 and now moving towards the end of the book, we begin to get an idea of how this might be. Because we are introduced now to the second half of our title over Isaiah, Sovereign Servant. We're introduced now to the servant. And and what we see about this servant is that this servant is now going to lead and call to the people and he's going to save them. He's going to bring them back. So how is it that God in his righteousness and in his judgment is going to be able to be with a people that are sinful? Well, the servant has something to do with it. That's how far we are right now. That's what we know so far. The servant has something to do with it. If you happen to uh, have your Bibles open, go a few chapters back to Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1, where we first hear about this servant, this mysterious man who will act on God's behalf. Here's what it says the servant will do. God speaking, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so the first time we hear about this servant, he's bringing justice. Okay, well, that's very much in line with what we've seen so far in the book of Isaiah. We've seen the God of judgment in many, many chapters of Isaiah so far. And now, when God sends his servant, what does his servant do? What is he bringing? He's bringing justice. But we're getting a glimpse, and I hope you see it there in the text. We're getting a glimpse in Isaiah 42 that the way in which the servant is bringing justice, there's a mercy to the servant. Do you see it there? That he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. That's gentle, right? A faintly burning wick uh, he will not quench, right? So there's a gentleness to this servant, but what is he bringing? He's bringing God's justice. His mission will be associated with God's justice and judgment. So who is he? What exactly is going on here? Well, we have a few chapters where we don't hear this title servant showing up again. But the next time the servant title shows up and the next verses that speak about him are our text right here in Isaiah chapter 49. And that's what I would like to get into right now. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the main point. The servant calls the whole world to hear that he alone brings salvation. So the servant calls the whole world to hear that he alone brings salvation. Let's jump into our text now, Isaiah chapter 49. Let's look at the first half of verse one. Here's what he says. The servant speaking now. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, here's point one. If you're taking notes, the servant, we're going to see, is commissioned with a special task. 
So the servant, we're going to see in a minute, is, is commissioned. He's given a mission to perform a special task. So notice that it starts out, the text starts out, that there's a call for the nations to listen. Do you hear the word coastlands there? That's a strange word, but if you think about the fact that Israel, uh, the, the way, the, where they were geographically, they were sort of on the Mediterranean Sea. As they looked out on the sea and they thought about the nations that were round about them, they often thought in terms of the coastlands. In other words, to call out to the other nations around Israel was to call out to the coastlands. And in case there's any question about who that is, it says, the next line says, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Okay, so this, this servant now is calling out to all peoples outside of Israel even, and he says, I want you to listen to me. I have something I want you to hear. And those peoples that are outside of Israel, that includes you and that includes me assuming that you're, not, uh, that you're not an ethnic Jew this afternoon. If you're a Gentile, if you were raised in a nation outside of Israel, then you're one of those to whom he is calling as he speaks right now. Now, we don't know yet who's speaking, but we know that the call is going out to all peoples all over. Now, let's, look, let's continue with our text and see what he says. Isaiah 49, second half of 1 and 2. The Lord called me, he says, from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, if you know something about the Old Testament, and if you've read other Old Testament books, the way he's speaking right now might sound familiar to you. Because this is the way that many, many prophets begin the books, their books. In other words, for instance, the book of Jeremiah. He was a prophet in Israel, similar to Isaiah. What does the book of Jeremiah say about Jeremiah in the very beginning of the book? Here's Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, so that language there in Jeremiah chapter one is very, very similar to what we see here because I'm gonna say it again. The Lord called me from the womb, again, talking about his commission from birth, from the earliest possible point of his earthly existence. He had a calling on his life to do something. And we haven't heard what that thing is yet, but here's what you can guess. It's prophet-like. In other words, it's similar to the calling of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or any of the other prophets. There's going to be a sense similar to them that this servant is given a mission and a task that he is supposed to, to live out and something that he is supposed to do. So notice here, though, that the, the servant is speaking about himself here. This is something the prophets didn't do. The prophets would oftentimes say, the word of the Lord came, came to me, and, and I'm going to speak to you. <clears throat> if they were speaking to the people of Israel, they would say, this is what the word of the Lord says to you. But I want you to notice that when the servant speaks, he doesn't say, this is the word of the Lord to you as if a prophet. He says, this is what I say to you. So that ought to, that ought to raise your eyebrows there for a moment, that he's not just saying 
Here's God, and here's what he's saying. I'm going to mediate between you and him so you can hear what he's saying. He says, here's what I am going to speak to you. That tells us that there's something else going on here. Let's look at what else it says. Isaiah 49, verse 2. What else does it say about this servant? He says, he, God, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So we get a glimpse here in verse 2 of the kind of ministry that this sort of prophet-like person is going to have. And there's two things that we see. Number one, his ministry is to have to do with his words. Do you notice that? That he's saying there in the very beginning of verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He specifically speaks about his mouth. So similar to uh, another prophet, this prophet-like person is going to speak. And when he speaks, there's going to be an authority that comes with the word. And there's even a sharpness to the word. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. There's a sharpness to to the word that he speaks. Number two, notice that his ministry will be hidden. Do you notice that there? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. What's happening there? The idea of the shadow of the hand would be that you were holding something, perhaps a dagger or a sword, and you could hold it against your arm so that nobody could see it, and you put your, the back of your hand to the person so they can't see what's actually behind your hand. So the idea here is that God is holding this particular individual behind his arm so that you can't see it. And he goes on and he says, he made me like a a polished arrow. But then what does it say? In his quiver, he hid me away. So there's there's a hiddenness, at least partially, to his ministry. There's a time in which we don't see him, and then there's the moment that God wants to reveal him where all of a sudden we do. Similar to a warrior, all of a sudden pulling out a sword or pulling out his arrow because now it's time to fire. This ministry that he's going to have is going to have a hiddenness to it. So who is he? Who is this servant? Well, let's move to verse 3, and now and we're going to get another clue as to who this servant is. Isaiah 49, verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now here's point two if you're taking notes. The servant will uniquely display the beauty of the Lord. Okay, so he, he, will, he will uniquely display God's glory or uniquely display his beauty. Now, notice now that he's called my servant by God. And then notice right afterwards we have a comma and then we have Israel. My servant, Israel. So it is this servant of, the, of, of God, Israel, he calls him, and he says, I'm going to be glorified in him. Now, that's an okay translation to say that God's glory is going to be in him, but, but there's a, the Hebrew is slightly different here, and I want you to hear it. The Hebrew says, 
I'm going to display my beauty in him. Like all that I am, God says, I'm going to put into him. I'm going to display that in him. And if you are reading an ESV translation, you'll notice that there's a tiny little footnote probably next to your translation that says, here's another way to read this. And they have in there that I will, in him, I will display my beauty. So in this servant, God is going to display his beauty. But who is this person? Well, now, if you're reading this and you're just saying, well, it just told us who he is, pastor. It's, it says that he's Israel, like he's in the people Israel, right? Isn't he the people Israel? Because it just says there, he, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, if you speak today to uh, a religious Jewish person who, uh, who would, would argue for their Jewish faith and they know their Bible, their Old Testament, they would look at this verse and they say, yeah, see, it's the people. It's the, it's the whole people of Israel who are the servant of God. They, they sort of act in solidarity as one, as God's people. So is that who it is? Is that who we're talking about? To, to say the word Israel is to talk about God's people, the people of Old Testament Israel. I think there are two reasons why Israel cannot, cannot refer to God's people here. And here's number one. Israel, the people, are not righteous before God. If you've been following with us, you say, I've already mentioned it, several places where God has spoken in condemnation of the people, that the people of Israel are not acting righteously before him at all. For instance, I've already made mention of this, but Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but what did he find? In Israel. But behold, he found bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, but what did he find? But behold, an outcry. In other words, unrighteousness. To the point where the victims of their unrighteousness are crying out to God. So this, this servant who we see of now as righteous cannot be the people of Israel because we've seen throughout the book that the people of Israel have, have acted terribly. They've acted sinfully. They have fallen far short of the standard that God has for them. And so what happens right after Isaiah 5 is that the Lord pronounces woe on them. That word woe, W-O-E, means destruction. That he pronounces a certain destruction upon the people because of their sin. And we see throughout the rest of the book the, 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 the repercussions, if you will, of their sinfulness. So it cannot be that the people are Israel, Israel here in our text is the people because the people are sinful and they've fallen far short of God's glory and God's perfection. But the biggest reason in our text that we can see, the most obvious reason that we can see is that in Isaiah 49, 6, if you'll just look down, the servant saves the people of Israel. So the servant can't be the people of God if the servant is saving the people of God. That would make no sense. Let's look at Isaiah 49, 6. We're going to get to it later, but let's just quickly glance at it. Here's Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is too light a thing for you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay, so how would that ever make sense? If, if the servant Israel is the people 
and then the servant saves the people, it makes zero logical sense that the people would be saving themselves. The servant Israel must be someone other than the people Israel when we see that here. So who is he then? What is the identity of this servant Israel that we see? As we've done before, we want to go to the New Testament now. We want to go and see what the New Testament authors have to say about this particular issue. And I think, what, I think when we get there, it's going to become clear who this servant is. So let me, let me begin. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but let me begin in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we have the, the story that we oftentimes hear around Christmas time. And it's the story of Mary and Joseph, and they are fleeing to Egypt. Why? Because King Herod, the king that was in charge of that particular area at the time, had heard that the Messiah was born. And he had heard that he was uh, uh, about, you know, between maybe one and two years old. And so the, the way he decides he's going to deal with this in, in his jealousy and in his hatred of the Messiah is that he decides that in the whole region, he's going to have all of the male-born babies, two years old and younger, killed. So he decides to just have his soldiers murder uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of babies because he's looking for the Messiah. And what do Mary and Joseph do? They flee. They're warned by an angel that they need to get out of town, basically. And where do they go? They go to Egypt. So they go from Israel, as we know it today, they travel down to Egypt and they spend some time there. And then they hear that Herod, the king that was gonna, that was killing all of these babies, he himself died. And then they feel like, okay, now it's okay for us to be able to go back. And Matthew, when they travel back from Egypt, Matthew says something really interesting about this. Here is what he says. He quotes uh, an Old Testament text, Hosea 11.1, 1, and it says this. Matthew, Matthew says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And he says that when Mary and Joseph and Jesus, when they came out of Egypt, he says that fulfilled what Hosea meant to say there. Okay, that's, that's strange because if you actually go back to Hosea 11.1, 1, you read that clearly what God was talking about there, what Hosea was talking about in that book is that out of Egypt I've called my son, that was actually a reference to Old Testament Israel coming out of Egypt. Some of you know the story of Pharaoh, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they were able to get out on the other side, and Pharaoh's armies, uh, it crashed down upon them, and they were drowned, and, and they were saved. And God says, yeah, out of Egypt I called my son. They're referencing Old Testament Israel, the people. So wait a minute here. What, what is Matthew doing then? How is Matthew saying, yeah, so when Mary and Joseph and Jesus, when they left Egypt and when they came back to Israel, that fulfilled what Hosea 11.1 1 was saying. That seems strange. Unless Matthew understands that Jesus, in some sense, is Old Testament Israel anew. Now, that's going to sound strange to you. I'm going to go through one more text, and I want to show you that this actually occurs again, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. In Matthew chapter 4 now, 
Just a few verses, a few chapters later in the book of Matthew, we have another famous, somewhat famous scene where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And again, Matthew makes it very, very clear that it's in the wilderness that Jesus is tempted. I think he says it three or four times. He goes out to the wilderness and he's hungry out there. And, and, and while he's out there, Satan comes and they have this exchange. They have this interaction. And essentially it's a temptation that Satan is offering to Jesus. And there's three different forms of it. <coughs> Excuse me. There's three different things that, that Satan offers to Jesus. And we know the answer that Jesus, Jesus emerges out of that temptation righteously. He he stands in the temptation, so to speak. And we see that in Matthew 4, Matthew is doing everything he can to paint a particular picture and show us a particular picture here because Jesus was not the first to come to go into the wilderness. Israel, the people, were in the wilderness. And just like Jesus was hungry... Israel, the people, were hungry. There's an actual point where they say, we are hungry, God give us something to eat. And in that, there's a great temptation for them, isn't there? There's a great temptation for the people to turn away from God. In fact, that's exactly what we see them doing. We see them turn away from God such that, to the point that, there was a very short walk that they had to make from Egypt to Israel. It wasn't very, very far. And God says, because you have sinned against me, because you have not trusted me, I'm not bringing you into the land right now. In fact, I'm going to cause you to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until your generation that's, been, that's rebelled against me dies off. And then the younger generation, they're going to be the ones to actually enter into Israel, into the promised land. What do we capture from that? The actual story of the people of Israel in the wilderness, they failed. They were tempted in the wilderness, and they failed. But here is another Israel in Matthew chapter 4. And where they failed, he succeeded. He actually held to God's word. He was faithful where they were not. And Matthew wants us to see this. He wants us to see this, that when he came out of Egypt, out of Egypt I called my son Israel. And then in Matthew chapter 4, he wants us to see, just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness, so was Jesus, the new Israel, tempted in the wilderness. And he succeeded where Israel failed. So there's this concept in the Bible that we call recapitulation. And it just means that sort of the same type of story is being told again but there's a new figure. It's the same Israel, Israel and Israel, but here is the new Israel, and whereas the first Israel failed, the new Israel succeeds. Some of you might not be familiar with this concept, but you may be familiar with Romans 5, where Paul calls Jesus the new Adam. You remember this? Whereas Adam failed in the garden, Jesus is the new Adam that didn't fail. In fact, Jesus had his own garden moment, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is praying, he's praying to his father, asking him with sweating drops of blood, asking him, if it be possible, remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He succeeded where Adam failed. 
One garden produced failure. One garden produced obedience. One desert wilderness produced failure. One wilderness produced obedience. So Jesus is Israel. Is that weird? Is that weird to say that? Well, we're used to Israel being a whole group of people. But Jesus is now going to sort of take on the bear, the brunt of the whole people, and he is going to obey. He is the servant now who God says, you are Israel. Confusing stuff, maybe, but this is the way the book of Isaiah speaks. In fact, this is the way the Bible speaks about Jesus. So who is the servant Israel? Well, He's Jesus Christ. He is the one who was commissioned by God to come to bring salvation for all the ends of the earth who will trust in him. So it's Jesus whose words were like a sword. It's interesting to me that Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 19, he stands when he returns, when he's going to return again to this earth, it says that he opened his mouth and out of his mouth came a sharp sword pointing directly to this verse in Isaiah where God says, I'm going to make your mouth like a sword. It's Jesus who, like an arrow, could aim at the heart. And there are so many stories. There are so many stories where Jesus has an interaction with a person where he just knows exactly what is going on in their heart. And there's, it would take me too long to go into those, but there are so many. And the idea here is that God has now kept Jesus hidden until the right time. Um, God had a plan from the foundation of the world, but that plan was not clear to each and every generation along the way. That plan was only made clear in the what we would call the New Testament time where Jesus himself was finally named. Prior to that, you see shadow, you see mystery, you see, we get glimpses here and there, but it's, it's like I can't really see exactly what is going on here until he is born, until he takes on human flesh. And at that point, we see that he's the fulfillment of all of the mystery that's taken place so far in the Old Testament. And it is in Jesus whom God has displayed his beauty. Here's what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, upholded, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Jesus, God is displaying the fullness of his beauty. Why is that so important to us that Jesus is the second Israel that was obedient where the first Israel failed? Why is it important that Jesus is the second Adam that was obedient where the first Adam failed? Why does, why does that matter to us today, sitting here in the 21st century, far removed from the people of Israel and the nation of Israel? <coughs> Excuse me. Simple answer, a disobedient Savior can't save you. If you're going to lean on Jesus 
for your salvation, if we're going to call people right now, like those who are hearing my voice, if we're going to call you, we're going to plead with you to come and to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. The only reason we can say that is because Jesus was perfectly righteous and obedient where no one else could be. And what we see in Scripture is we see this obedience and this perfect submission to his Father on display. Why is it so important that Jesus be perfect? Because the way sin leaves us, according to the Bible, the way we get sin off of us, it, right? So I just want to clarify, it isn't by doing a bunch of good stuff to try to cover up our bad, right? Like, if, if you're a person that feels aware of your guilt and aware of things you've done in the past that you've known have, you, have been sin, have been wrong, you don't overcome that by doing enough good things to try to outweigh that. There are certain religions that teach that. There's sort of this balancing of the scales idea. idea. Christianity is not one of them. Sin doesn't leave when you just decide you're going to try to do good things or do better. No, sin leaves because your sin goes on to another. That's what Christianity teaches. Your sin goes on to another and that other dies. That other pays the full penalty for your sin. But it isn't just that my sin goes on to that other person. That would sort of put me, so to speak, like at zero, right? Like my negative stuff went off of me and it went on to somebody else and now I'm in neutral territory. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is not only did our sin go on to him, his righteousness fell on to me. This is what we call the double exchange. This is what we call my sin going to him, his sin going to me. This is what we call... Um, We call it the beautiful exchange. I gave him my sin. He gave me his righteousness. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's Paul says, For our sake, he, God, made him him to be sin who knew no sin. So there's Jesus, the perfect one. God made him to be sin. What does that mean? He made him to be sin. He put our sin on him. What's the, what's the result? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's an exchange of I'm no longer sinful in God's eyes. I'm now righteous in, my, in God's eyes. Jesus takes upon my sin. He then dies the just punishment of my sin, not for his own sins, and raises again from the dead because he never sinned and death can't hold him. This is the centerpiece for us as Christians. And a disobedient Savior, one who succumbed to the temptations of the enemy, simply cannot save us, simply is not uh, able to, for us to lean upon him for salvation. So your sin was substituted to Jesus when you trusted in him by faith. And his righteousness was substituted to you Now, this is how, in Christianity, this is how we become righteous. This is how we are saved before God. This is how we stand before God one day, hearing righteous over us and not judged and sent away from him forever. Okay, let's continue on in our text. Chapter, or the the next, um, the next point, point number three, 
the servant appears to fail in his task. Let's, let's look at what the text says. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 4, the servant continues to speak, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now, I want to skip verse 5 for just a second because I want you to hear now, I want you to hear the answer that he gets back from God. Isaiah 49, 6, here's what God says, now back to the servant. So just so you get the context, the servant just said, I feel like I have acted in vain. I feel like I didn't complete my mission that I was supposed to do. Here's God. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what is the issue here? What is going on between God and the servant as we have this conversation happening? Why does the servant feel like he has failed? Well, if we go to Isaiah 49.5, we're going to see what the servant was originally commissioned to do, and then we're going to see the, the surprise again in verse 6. Let's look at Isaiah 49.5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, what's the mission now? Listen, to bring Jacob back to him. Okay, so if you've been following us, you know that Jacob is Israel. Jacob is the people of God the Old Testament people of God, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So what was the mission? The mission was for Jesus to go to the people of Israel. That's at least how it's originally presented, right? And now there's this exchange back and forth, right? And so we see Jesus will say in the New Testament, he'll say in Matthew 15, 24, for instance, Jesus will say, it'll say, he answered, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's strange. What, what is happening here? Well, there's an apparent failure because what happens? What do we know from history happens uh, when Jesus is sent to the lost sheep of, the, of Israel? How many of them come? Only a handful. Only a few. You've got the disciples and you've got a few others who sort of band together with them in the early church who would say, yes, I am part of ethnic Israel. I am a Jew and yet I am now a Christian. I have, I have, I have seen my Messiah and Jesus is it. Very, very few people actually came and trusted in Christ during that time to the point where the apostle Paul has to actually, he has to actually speak about it in Romans chapter nine. And he has to say, has God failed? Has God failed? Because this was the mission. It was to go and to save God's people. And here we see this moment of the servant saying to his father, I feel like I've Everything that I have done so far has been in vain. And we see the answer come now in verse 6. And the answer, I don't believe, I don't believe that this is a conversation where Jesus, the, 
you know, who is God, who is the second person of the Trinity, is learning something new. I think this is for our benefit. I think this is for us to hear what God says in Isaiah 49, 6. I want to read it one more time. What is God's answer now to the fact that it seems like Israel, it seems like Jesus has not brought Israel back to God? Isaiah 49, 6. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up. Might I just add this word, just the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back just the preserves of Israel. What, what do I mean by that? The words he has, is it too light a thing? It is too light a thing. In other words, he's saying, my plan is bigger. My plan is bigger than just my Old Testament people. My plan is to extend to the ends of the earth. And so why do we have in verse 1 a call for the whole world to hear? Why is it that the coastlands are supposed to hear? Why is it that, that all of the nations from afar are supposed to hear? Because it is here in Isaiah 49 that we realize the scope of the mission of the Messiah that it is not just about one particular people group, that God himself says, yes, it might look like you have failed for a moment with that particular people group. But my mission all along has been that you would bring the ends of the earth to me. God's plan for the Messiah is global. Because God, I've said it before, God is not a tribal deity. God is not a, the, the, the God of a small village. He's not the God of a nation. He's not the God of Americans. Do you understand that? He's not the God of, of particular cultures and people. In Revelation chapter 5, we see before the throne of God, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Lamb has redeemed them. That means every people group, every language, every color and tone of skin, every single group is going to be represented in the kingdom. There will not be any missing because God's plan all along has been to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. Now that is a really, really good news for those of us Gentiles that sit here thousands of miles away from Israel who are hearing this and who desire to be saved. Do you desire to be saved this afternoon? Do you desire that God's wave of salvation as he's describing it going out, that the servant is now sending out, do you desire that that wave would come across you and that you would be saved? If that's you, then this is incredible news because it means that you weren't rejected. It means that you weren't left out of the plan, that you don't get to stand on the outside. There's an opportunity for you to come. It's as if God is saying right now to you, he's standing here with open arms saying, come to me. Jesus said once at the top of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He said again one time, come to me, Jerusalem. How I have longed to gather you in my arms like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. I want to plead with you that you would not be one of those over whom Jesus said, but you were not willing. Because if you stand before God one day in judgment, and you hearing my voice right now, 
Know that it isn't because God was not willing to save you. Know that it was because you were not willing to be saved. God himself says, I desire that all would come. And he stands with open arms so that I can stand here and be faithful to God's word as a preacher as I'm preaching the gospel to you right now saying, come to him. And I can preach to everybody. There's nobody that I will refuse to preach to because here in this text, the mission that God has sent his Messiah on is to bring the ends of the earth to salvation. And so that call is to you. And I pray you will come. Now in conclusion, what do we make of this? What do we make of Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6? I've already mentioned that in some sense it's, it's good news for us to hear. And I want to just take a second and specifically talk to those of you that maybe are hearing my voice right now. Maybe you found this or you're logging into YouTube right now and you're hearing me talk. I want to plead with you that you would hear this message of salvation, that you would hear this God and his heart, that his servant, by his death on a cross, would send salvation out. The way in which it goes out, by the way, is through words that are being spoken, like my words now. As it stands right now, if you haven't put your trust in Christ, you stand outside of God's salvation. Salvation comes through him alone. And what I want and many other, those of other Christians, preachers, those who are Christians and who know the word of God and who love the word of God are pleading with you to see and to understand it. It is through him alone that salvation comes. This passage is a declaration that God's salvation has gone out to the whole world. And that means you, if you're hearing my voice. So would you come? Would you be willing to come and to put your trust in Jesus and be saved? Second, the second group I want to talk to is for those of you that are trusting in the Lord. You've been called to continue now this movement of God's salvation that he entrusted to his servant. Did you know that? If you're a Christian this afternoon, you've been called to continue the mission that God sent his servant on. How do we know? How do we know? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you hear in there, Isaiah 49, this commissioning of a servant? God commissioning the servant in Jesus? He says, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is what Jesus says to his disciples just in the last moments, the last conversation he has before he ascends to heaven, the right hand of his Father. That is the last words that he gives to us as the church, to continue on in the work that Jesus is doing. And it's amazing to me how it matches, it matches what Jesus was originally given to do. Not every person had believed by the time Jesus left. 
The plan all along was that we would continue what Jesus began. And it isn't just us instead of Jesus. Here's what the, here's what the word of God calls us, the body of Christ. So that as the church is now bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jesus is bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. His mission continues through the life of the church. So what does that mean for us? That this is our commission. What does that mean? Echo church members, what does this mean then? There's my question for us. What does this mean for us when it comes to world missions? When it comes to taking the gospel overseas to places that are hard, places that maybe the gospel has not yet been preached, or if it has, it's, it's as they call it, it's difficult ground, right? It's, it goes and it lands and it just seems to have no effect, but our call is to continue to push it forward and to move forward with the commission that we've been called to. What does this mean for us? How can we as a church obey the commission that we've been given, which was originally Jesus' commission, to bring all, to, bring, to, to send the call out to all? There are still roughly 6,000 people groups that have not yet heard the gospel. 6,000 groups of people. And what I read when I read bring the gospel to all nations, and by the way, that doesn't mean like political nations. Like it doesn't mean like a border that somebody just created. The word there means peoples, people groups. And if I count roughly 6,000 left, then we have work to do. How are we as a church gonna be a part of that great commission? I want us to think about that. I want to think about I want to I want to help lead you in thinking about that, but I want us together to think about that. What I'm asking is that we together begin to think strategically about what it means that Jesus is the God who reigns over all, over all peoples, and that ultimately in heaven there will be from every tribe and tongue and nation. How do we reach them? What is it that we do? What is our part as a church? to be able to reach them. Because we were reaching them with a gospel that says this, Jesus is the only answer to the judgment of God that is coming for all sinners. He alone took the full wrath of God, bearing on his back the sins of all of his people so that he could say, Isaiah 49, 1, listen, world, I am bringing salvation come and trust in me. And that is our message to the whole world, whether it's our neighbors or whether it's those that are overseas. And let's pray that God would actually help us to accomplish this, or at least accomplish our part. Lord Jesus, we come realizing again this incredible commission that you've placed on us that your father in Isaiah 49 gave to you, called you from the womb, as it says, and gave to you a mission that you should save to the uttermost, the ends of the earth. And then you turned around in your last moments before ascending to heaven and you gave that commission to your church. So now how do we, Lord, 
go forward in your power, with your strength, with your wisdom, how do we now find ourselves obedient to that commission? Lord, help us. And for any of that are hearing my voice right now who have not yet put their full trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them in their hearts right now. Convict them of your kindness towards them. And we learn in Romans that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That it is kind that you would send your son to pay the price on a cross for our sins. And that we can enter into that by faith. So may they put their trust in you this afternoon. May they glorify you. May they walk with you for all the days of their lives. God, we pray that you would do this and more. Help us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're